As far as we can remember back into our childhood, we simply were always able to walk. So then it's only after maybe hurting the ankle or hurting the knee or maybe after an accident that we have to start to learn walking again. And then we realize that being able to walk is such a convenient thing and we simply take it for granted. So as I said, walking is a very interesting process that normally, that we do not pay much attention to normally. However, for our meditation practice, walking becomes an important and, as I found for myself, an extremely helpful part. I do not know how I would have survived my many years of meditation practice in Burma had it not been for, medi for walking meditation. The Buddha mentioned that we can practice in four different postures. It's the postures of sitting, walking, standing, and lying. So practicing meditation in the sitting posture is best known. And also Buddha statues, we often see them as the Buddha sitting, like the statue over here. So many, many uh, statues of the Buddha show him sitting. Of course, there are also Buddha statues showing him in the lying posture or reclining like when he was resting or entering Parinibbana, his final passing away. These statues always show him lying on the right side of his body with his right hand supporting his head. But of course, there are quite, also quite a number of Buddha statues showing him in the standing posture or even in the walking posture, like indicating that he's walking. One such a nice statue can be found at the Dhammapala Monastery in Switzerland. In front of the monastery of the house, they have quite a, a big um, Buddha statue, kind of in the walking posture. Fits very well into uh, the, the, the landscape because the monastery is situated up in the mountains, surrounded by high mountains. So during a meditation retreat, like the one we are doing here, most meditators are not able to sit all day long. So therefore, meditators alternate between sitting meditation and walking meditation. 
And especially in, in monasteries in Thailand, forest monasteries, or when I had been practicing at Wat Buddha Dhamma, north of Sydney, they have kutis out in the bush, and next to each kuti is a walking path. So then, after doing sitting meditation, one simply gets up and has the walking meditation path uh, very close. So as I said, walking meditation is quite important and also very helpful. And so tonight I will talk about its significance, then the benefits that can be derived from this practice, and its nature, also including some insights uh, one can gain by doing walking meditation. So first, to the significance of walking meditation. So walking meditation is an integral part for the development of continuous mindfulness. You know, it's like uh, boiling water. If you want to boil water, you have to turn on the switch and then it takes some time until the water starts boiling. So if you turn on the switch, but then after some moments turn it off, let it rest for a while, then you go, turn it on again, then turn it off again, let it rest for a while. So in this way, the water will never come to a boil. One needs to have the kettle on, the switch on for a certain period of time. Then the water comes to the boil. And likewise, for our mindfulness to become strong and deep, we need to be continuously mindful over an extended period of time. So some meditators doubt the benefit and need of walking meditation. They think the time or the period of walking meditation is just a period of stretching one's leg, taking a little break, or going uh, to drink a cup of tea or coffee. You know, I think it would be really interesting to have a retreat during which the teachers practice walking meditation together with the meditators instead of being present in the hall during the sitting meditation. So then the sitting meditation period would be the period when you go to the loo, when you stretch your legs, when you go and have your cup of tea. <laughs> Imagine how that would be. So the Buddha mentioned walking, walking meditation twice in his discourse on the foundations of mindfulness, the Satipatthana Sutta. 
in the section about the postures, the four postures that I mentioned earlier, he said that a monk or a meditator knows I am walking when he, she is walking. And in another chapter, the chapter on clear comprehension, the Buddha said, a meditator applies clear comprehension in going forward and in going backward. No, and in going back. <laughs> it's a difference. <laughs> so, clear comprehension means the correct understanding of what one observes. And so, to correctly understand what one is mindful of, what one observes, a meditator must be focused or one-pointed. And in order to be focused and one-pointed, one must apply mindfulness. One must be mindful uh, continuously. And so therefore, when the Buddha had said, meditators apply clear comprehension, we must understand that not only clear comprehension must be applied, but also mindfulness and one-pointedness or concentration. You know, it is said, we know, that the Buddha uh, attained full liberation, complete enlightenment, while sitting under the Bodhi tree. But many of his disciples had the big breakthrough not during the sitting meditation. For some of them, it happened in the walking meditation. Famous examples are, for example, the Venerable Moggallana, who became one of the Buddha's chief disciples. Or then there was the Venerable Subhadda. He was the last monk who attained arahantship, became fully enlightened while the Buddha was still alive. And then we also know, especially from the Terigatas and the Teragatas, the verses of the nuns and the monks, that many of them became fully liberated, not while sitting, but you know, during what we call mindfulness in daily activities. Like, for example, when washing their feet and watching the water trickle away. Or um, while having a fall, while falling, but still being mindful. Or one elderly nun climbed up to Vulture Peak outside of Rajgir, and being elderly, she was quite tired and exhausted when she came uh, to the top of Vulture Peak, and so she lent again a rock to take some rest, still being mindful. And it was in that moment that 
she became fully liberated. So don't expect your enlightenment to happen necessarily in the sitting. You know, it could happen in the walking or while going to the toilet. But you need to be present. Many years ago, um, when I was in Burma, we had a French meditator coming to the center and practicing Vipassana meditation. And she loved the walking meditation. She practiced much, much more walking meditation than sitting meditation. She could walk for one stretch for three hours. And she said, time was passing so fast. So then, what are the benefits of walking meditation? In one of his discourses, the Buddha mentioned five benefits that can be derived from the practice of walking meditation. This is a discourse that we can find in the Anguttara Nikaya. And four of these five benefits, they are related to our physical condition. They are related to our health. The Buddha was well aware that a healthy and fit body is a supportive condition for our practice. And of course, he also knew that a deep and penetrating understanding of the Dhamma can also happen during the walking meditation. Then the fifth benefit is more closely linked to the establishment of wholesome states of mind. So these are the five benefits that one can gain from practicing walking meditation, as the Buddha said. So the first one is, one is able to long, no, one is able to walk long distances. At the time of the Buddha, yes, this was very important because they didn't have public transport at that time. And when we look at the map and see the places that the Buddha went to, we see that he really covered uh, long distances to go from one place to another. And this first benefit I really came to experience for myself after I had spent my first six months in Burma in 1992, because before going to Burma, I had already planned to go to Ladakh, the Indian Himalayas, the following year with a friend of mine. So after practicing intensively in Burma at the center for six months, then I went to Ladakh. And, you know, I took, as I said, I took Sayadaw's advice to slow down really too hard. And, you know, during my walking meditation and also walking from place to place, 
I was not walking faster than a snail, basically for six months. And so often I started to worry, well, I will not be fit if I go to Ladakh, you know, and when I have to climb up to passes of 5,000 meters, how will I do it? You know, I will be panting and it will be impossible. But then I just noted, you know, worrying, worrying, doubt, doubt. But I stuck to Sayadaw's instructions to really walk very, very slowly. And so then, after six months, I left. I went to Ladakh. And to my big, big astonishment, I found that I was fit as I was before. So, I already could um, enjoy the first benefit of slow walking meditation. I was able to walk long distances, no problem. Then the second benefit from walking meditation, as said by the Buddha, is it creates energy or it boosts energy brings energy into the body and also uh, to the mind. Then the third benefit is good health, in very general. It contributes uh, to good health. And the fourth benefit, it's a bit more specific in regard to health, good digestion. And those of you who have been to Asia to practice, or just traveling around in Asia, um, and having had stomach problems, um, you know how debilitating and weakening it can be. So to have a good digestion is very important, also for our general health. And then the fifth benefit from practicing walking meditation is it helps to establish a long-lasting concentration. And so especially this last, the fifth benefit, is an interesting one and also a very helpful one. <clears throat> Again, from my own experience, I had come to realize that the concentration from a very focused, slow walking meditation was really stable and lasted for quite some time. Because it's a bit harder to establish good concentration in walking because there are more distractions, because we have our eyes open. But when I was able to restrain my eyes and not, not look here and there or into the distance. So when I was able to restrain my eyes and be really focused on the movement of the feet, on the sensations in the feet or any other object that would arise during the walking, then I could attain quite a deep state of concentration. And then, when I uh, went to the sitting meditation after the walking, I noticed 
that already at the beginning of my sitting meditation, the concentration was already much deeper, mindfulness was already uh, uh, much better than without having practiced walking before the sitting. Another advantage of the walking meditation is the fact that the object, like the movement of the foot, the sensation in the foot, so the object is quite distinct, clear, noticeable. For example, the movement of the foot is more distinct, is uh, more clearly noticeable than maybe a very subtle movement of the rising and falling of the belly, or which is even more subtle, like the sensations of the air going in and out at the nostrils. And so when an object is quite clear, then mindfulness can better stay with it, can better be aware of it. And also, for most of the meditators, the movement of the foot, the sensations in the foot, is a neutral object. It's not really attractive or pleasant. It's also not disgusting or repulsive. And it is said in the scriptures that concentration built up on a neutral feeling is strong and lasting. So as I have said, this benefit of establishing a long and lasting concentration through the practice of walking meditation comes in so helpful for our uh, sitting meditation. You know, then already at the beginning of the sit, we are much more focused. Uh, Mindfulness is, is much better. And so from there, in the sitting, we can develop it further. Of course, you know, not to be distracted in the walking meditation and to be really focused on the movement of the feet, the sensation in the feet. It needs a bit more effort, maybe. But then, enjoying the benefit of a long and lasting concentration, also for the sitting, so it makes well up for the little bit of more effort we put into the walking. In this regard, Sayadaw Upandita, he had said, a yogi who does not practice walking meditation before sitting is like a car with a rundown battery. So if it is possible, it's always good to do the walking before the sitting. So first do walking and then do the sitting meditation. So besides all these benefits, 
Walking meditation is simply an integral part of our vipassana meditation practice. Because in the same way as we watch the sensations, the thoughts, the emotions, the sounds, and so on, in the sitting practice, so can we watch the sensations, the thoughts, the emotions, the sounds, and so on, in the walking practice. The same insights into, for example, anicca, dukkha, and anatta can be gained in the walking as they can be gained in the sitting. So there is nothing that makes the sitting meditation inherently better than the walking meditation. Now I will talk about the nature of walking meditation and some insights understandings that can be gained uh, from the walking meditation. You know, it's interesting that we do not have any detailed instructions for walking meditation from the Buddha. I mentioned the two instances where walking um, was mentioned in the Satipatthana Sutta, but they are quite quite general. A meditator knows I am walking <laughs> or one is mindful of walking forward and going back. But I think he must have given some instructions for the walking practice. <clears throat> but then later on teachers came up and came up with more detailed walking meditation instructions. Nowadays, different teachers teach different methods of walking meditation. So, in my practice of Vipassana meditation, I learned the walking meditation based on the method taught by Mahasi Sayadaw. <clears throat> so, as you know, in this method of practicing walking meditation taught by Mahasi Sayadaw, the meditators are instructed to pay close attention to the movement of the feet or the sensations in the feet as they are walking. You know, so far I have given you the following instructions for the walking meditation. The first step is just to be aware of each step as we are walking, knowing each step or knowing left, right, left, right, knowing the movement, knowing the steps or the sensations in the feet. Then we can divide the step into more parts, so we can divide it into the three parts, the lifting, the pushing, and the dropping. Or adding 
the touching and the pressing, as I um, mentioned today. So then it makes five parts in each step. Lifting, pushing, dropping, touching, and pressing. Later on, one could even divide the step into smaller uh, parts, sections. And then one also can become aware of the intentions, intentions before the movement. Because it's these mental impulses, the intentions, that cause the movement of the foot to happen. And actually, it's the intentions that cause every movement in our body to happen. And so, as more and more parts of the step are noted and observed, then the meditators naturally slow down. Because if one is walking in normal speed, one cannot really be really aware of three or five uh, separate parts. You know, it's like if you're looking for a certain street, if you drive down the main road very fast, then there is no chance that you can read the signs going off uh, to the right. So you need to slow down to be able to read the signs. And so likewise, slowing down it helps to see more clearly, to see more details. So then, the next question, what insights can be gained from the practice of walking meditation? Most generally speaking, it's the insight into anicca, dukkha, and anatta, insights into the impermanent nature, the unsatisfactory nature, and the not-self nature or impersonal nature of all phenomena. But one can also gain insight into the specific characteristics, like anicca, dukkha, and anatta. These are the so-called general characteristics, because they apply to all um, phenomena, whether in the body or in the mind. But then there are also the so-called specific characteristics, which um, pertain specifically to certain uh, mind states or physical sensations. So, these specific characteristics of physicality, of bodily uh, experiences, they manifest through the so-called four primary elements. And in my own practice, I found that the walking meditation was very powerful to really see and understand and feel these four primary elements. 
So in the walking meditation, we get a very good opportunity to experience these four elements um, very directly. Um, you know, we don't need to think about it, but it's just a direct experience when we pay close attention. So I'll give you an example. Let's say a meditator is observing the five parts, the lifting movement, pushing movement, uh, dropping movement, then the touching sensation, and the pressing. So for the lifting, pushing, dropping, movement is quite obvious, can be experienced directly. And then with the touching and pressing, what can be experienced there is maybe hardness and cold and the kind of a stickiness, the foot sticks to the ground. And so these experiences of, of movement, of hardness, cold, stickiness, they are manifestations of the four primary elements. You know, these four primary elements are the earth element, the water element, the fire element, and the air or wind element. And each of these elements stands for a particular uh, characteristics. The earth element stands for hardness and softness. The water element stands for cohesion and flowing. The fire element stands for heat and cold, warmth. And the air or wind element stands for movement or vibrations and support. So by paying close attention to these five parts in the walking meditation, these four elements in their manifestations uh, can be clearly perceived, can be directly experienced as a direct and personal experience, not merely as an idea or as a concept. So you know then the lifting, pushing, dropping movement, movement, so that would be the experience of the air or wind element. Then when touching and pressing and experiencing the hardness, so that's, that would be the manifestation of the earth element. The cold one is experiencing is a manifestation of the fire element. And that kind of stickiness one is experiencing, that's a manifestation of the water element. And so in this way, just by paying close attention to one step in its different parts, one makes a direct experience of the four primary elements. So one realizes their specific characteristics. Because hardness and softness only belongs to the earth element, 
That's not a specific characteristic of the fire element, for example. So in this way, we can come to experience ultimate reality, you know, which is different from concepts. So of course, at the beginning of the walking meditation, we probably might be on the conceptual level. So as we take a step, kind of we know the foot is taking a step. So there's the concept of foot and there's the concept of taking a step, maybe the concept of movement. So in that initial stage, you know, we still perceive the form of the foot. Well, we have the concept of a foot that is moving. But then, later on, as our mindfulness becomes stronger, as concentration deepens, as we uh, observe the movement of the foot, the sensations, we may lose the notion of the foot that is moving. We notice movement, but it's not so clearly a foot anymore, or the, the concept or the mental image of a foot is not so clear anymore. But we definitely know that movement is happening. And so it is at this level that we leave the level of concepts and move towards the level of absolute reality. And later on, you know, maybe not only the notion of a foot or the concept of a foot um, dissolves, can even happen that the whole leg disappears or that, that the concept of a leg later on the whole body there is no more a concept or a mental image of a body but the mind knows movement is happening or hardness is being experienced or heat is being, is being uh, experienced and so then one also comes to realize that, you know, this experience has kind of two components. One component is the movement which is known, experienced, or the hardness and the heat. And the other component is there is something that knows that movement is happening, something that experiences the heat or the cold or the stickiness. So then one comes to see there is a mental component, the mind, the mindfulness, and there is a physical component, the movement, the heat, the hardness. So then one comes to uh, distinguish between a mental phenomenon mind and a physical phenomenon. 
So one comes to distinguish between nama and rupa. Nama means the mind, mental phenomena. And rupa means, pertains to the body, physical or material phenomena. So one clearly sees these are two different phenomena. One is mental, one is physical. And one also sees how they interact with each other or how they uh, condition each other. And so, for example, this is the inside knowledge of differentiating between nama and rupa, differentiating between mind and body, or between mental um, processes and physical processes. Another insight that can easily be gained through the walking meditation is the cause-effect relationship. As I said, later on in our walking meditation, we start to see, to know this little mental impulse which kind of flashes up just a moment before the actual movement happens. So we call this the intention, the intention to lift the foot or the intention to move it forward. So it's this intention that then causes the, mo the foot to move, that causes the movement. And it's not only in walking meditation that we can observe this, but also, uh, of course, in the day-to-day -day activities. Actually, each and every movement that we do is caused by an intention. So, if I lift my arm, there was the intention to lift it. To turn my head, there is the intention to turn my head. And so on. So, we come to see that the cause for the movement is the intention and that the effect of the intention is the movement. So we see this causal relation. A cause produces an effect. So then we come to understand conditionality. So understanding um, cause and effect. As I already said, in the walking meditation, we also get insights into the three general characteristics, anicca, dukkha, and anatta. So here, a few words, a few explanations of how these three general characteristics uh, manifest or how they can be experienced. So first of all, anicca, impermanence. Let's say we observe three parts to each step, lifting movement, pushing movement, dropping movement. And so paying close attention to these movements, we see that the lifting movement 
arises, it is present for a little while, and then the lifting movement is finished. So we see how the lifting movement arises and then passes away. And then the pushing forward movement begins and comes to an end. This movement also arises and passes away. And likewise with the movement downwards, the dropping movement. At the beginning, this movement arises, lasts a little bit, and then comes to an end when touching the floor. And so after these movements have disappeared, after they have ended, they are gone, completely gone. They do not come up again. So then the next movement is a new movement, one which has never uh, arisen before. So this is seeing impermanence in quite a general way, quite a rough way. We can see it in much more detail on a much smaller scale. So for example, you probably have all seen when movement is filmed in slow motion, then a kind of what is normally a smooth movement uh, breaks up in separate little movements. We can also notice this in old films, like films with Charlie Chaplin, where kind of his movements are a bit jerky or rugged. So good mindfulness and good concentration they are like a magnifying glass, or even like a microscope. And so, you know, with the slowing down and seeing more details, and as our mindfulness becomes sharper, then when we, for example, watch a movement, you know, what we perceived so far as a smooth uh, movement, you know, that goes from here to here, from A to B, kind of starts to be not so smooth anymore. Somehow it becomes a bit jerky, a bit rugged, which somehow feels strange, because for us, movement all our life long has been something very smooth, you know, from here to here one goal. And so with continuous practice and um, looking more carefully, going more into it, this movement starts to fall apart into kind of smaller little movements, you know, separate little movements, one after the other, very quickly. And the sharper our mindfulness is, the deeper our concentration is, the, the smaller get these separate little movements. Incredibly fast, but really seeing them as separate little movements. One little movement arising and passing away, followed by the next little movement arising and passing away, in very quick succession. 
And so then one can see the impermanence of a physical process of movement uh, in much more detail. And with this minute um, seeing, or with this seeing of the minute impermanence uh, of this physical process, we lose the sense that there is something substantial. There's really nothing substantial there. It's just this endless process of arising and passing away. When I was practicing with Saido Ujjanakam in his center in Yangon in the early years, at one stage there was also a Dutch yogi and he was practicing and one afternoon as he was doing walking meditation he started to feel that the movement was not so smooth anymore but it became a bit jerky, a bit rugged and he thought that's strange. I must do something wrong. And so he tried very much to make it smooth again. But the more he tried, the less he could do it. And the movement became jerkier. And in the evening, he was really distressed and he thought, I'm going crazy. I think I have to leave the center, you know, before I really uh, become insane. I should leave. So then the following morning, he went to Sayadaw Ujjanaka and he said, Sayadaw, I'm getting crazy, so it's better I go back to Holland. And then Sayadaw said, well, tell me what has happened. Why do you think you are getting crazy? And so then the meditator related his experience in walking meditation he had the afternoon before. And so then, when Sayado heard his report, then he said, well, there's no need to go back to Holland. You know, you are not getting crazy, but actually you are recovering from craziness. <laughs> you know, finally, he realized the nature of movement. He came to see very clearly what it actually is. And everybody who takes movement to be something smooth, beginning here and ending there, is actually crazy. Not really understanding the true nature of things. So this one, or this, uh, is how impermanence, the fleeting nature of phenomena, the impermanent nature of phenomena, can be experienced in walking meditation. Now in regard to the second general characteristic, in regard to the dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, or suffering nature. You know, in one way, when one clearly sees the impermanent nature of things, when one clearly notices things arise and pass away, arise and pass away, when one clearly sees there is nothing lasting, 
There is no substantial entity that is not subject to arising and passing away. Then one begins to understand that all these impermanent experiences, processes, do not provide lasting satisfaction because one cannot kind of hold on to them because they dissolve and disappear at one stage. They are not the base for lasting happiness and peace. In one stage of the practice of vipassana meditation, one clearly notices the disappearance of phenomena, of object. I said there is one stage when one clearly sees the arising and passing away of objects, and after that comes the phase when the arising is not so clear anymore, but the disappearance, the passing away. And so in walking meditation, this can also be seen, that whatever is observed, it's just passing away, disappearing, disappearing, disappearing. And so at, at seeing this, experiencing that, the mind can get quite frightened, or the mind freaks out, or the mind feels oppressed by this constant disappearance of the phenomena, of the movements, of the sensations. So then there is no stability, everything disappears, the mind cannot grasp anything, so the mind cannot really hold on to the movement because it's just these pixels of movements arising and passing away. And so this is a very unsatisfactory experience. It creates quite a lot of distress and mental suffering. So, dukkha. Then the third general characteristic is anatta, the not-self nature of all phenomena, or the impersonal nature. So while we are doing the walking meditation, observing the movements, the sensations in the foot, then after some time we kind of notice that these movements happen as if by, their, by themselves or on their own accord. Or later on, when we notice the intentions, then we notice an intention arises and then the movement happens as if by itself. So then it feels like it's not I that lift the foot, but the foot is just being lifted. I have no, I do not need to make any effort to push the foot forward, but after the intention to push the foot forward has arisen, the foot is moved forward as if by itself. And again, when that starts to happen, it feels a bit odd because like we think, I walk, I lift my foot. It's always a process that 
I am doing. But then for me in my practice, it felt as if I was a puppet on strings. It was like a string was attached to my foot and somehow an unseen hand was lifting the string and with that my foot was lifted. And then that unseen hand moved it forward and with that my foot was moved forward. And then the string was dropped and my foot uh, dropped. And so then I lo no longer had the, the notion I am walking, but it rather felt it is walking or I was being walked. And so in this way we can come to directly experience the anatta characteristic, the not-self, the impersonal nature of things. You know, even this walking process is an impersonal process. Intentions and movements happen, but there is no need for an I or a me or an ego or a self for these processes uh, to happen. So as I said, in my own meditation practice, I have found that the walking meditation was incredibly helpful to understand the, the nature of things, and especially to understand the anatta characteristic, the impersonal nature of this body-mind process. Because especially the characteristic of anatta is difficult to grasp, difficult to understand on an intellectual level. But with the careful and detailed awareness of the movements and intentions in the walking meditation, I could yeah, make... Uh, Made, make a direct experience of it and therefore uh, understand it. I think without the walking meditation practice it would have taken much longer for me to really deeply understand the characteristic of not-self, of anatta. So I will close the talk with some words of Sayadaw Usilananda. He was also a student of Mahasi Sayadaw and later then he lived and taught for many years in California in the United States. He passed away in 2005 when he was in the USA suffering from a brain tumor. So this is what Sayato Usilananda had said. Walking meditation is conducive to spiritual development. It is as powerful as mindfulness of breathing 
or mindfulness of the rising and falling of the abdomen. It is an efficient tool to help us remove mental defilements. Walking meditation can help us gain insight into the nature of things, and we should practice it as diligently as we practice sitting meditation or any other kind of meditation. So there is nothing to add. Let's sit quietly for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.